Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Pem Pem Pals. Uh, we're continuing our coverage of Gundam, the origin. Uh, this episode is episode three, Dawn of Rebellion. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Alex, and with me, as always, is... Hey, this is Brian. Uh, and Ben is not here this week, uh, trying something new. Not that he's like gone or anything. Just, you know, things come up and we're going to see if we can barrel through with one of us missing. He'll be sorely missed. But thankfully, we do have a third participant. This week, we have a new wonderful guest, uh, Thomas Bowman. Hey, guys. Yay. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for being here. Uh, you are, I think, by far our most professional podcasting guest so far. Oh, you need better guests. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, uh, remind me, which uh, which podcast do you work on again? Or it's you and a partner do the whole thing. Right? I'm a co-host of Transition Virginia, a podcast on Virginia politics with Michael Pope, who is a NPR reporter for WVTF down in Blacksburg. And uh, we cover all sorts of Virginia politics, specifically the transition of power from Republican to Democrat from 2020 when we started and today in 2021. Man, that's awesome. Sounds so comprehensive. Uh, you have a favorite episode that you've recorded? It's like you've already done your first year, right? Yeah, we did a whole year. I really like the one we recorded with Delegate Lee Carter on right to work laws and why they should mm. be repealed. We just published a really good one on campaign finance reform with a oh, guy yeah. named Delegate Marcus Simon, who is the chairman of the House Privileges and Elections Committee that handles campaign finance. Oh, wow. I highly encourage people to go listen to that. And then there was one very early on that we recorded with Lori Haas and Brian Moran on gun laws and the need for mm -hmm. um, gun safety regulations. And uh, you can find that all at transitionvirginia.com. So campaign finance reform is like one of the most unsexy topics, but I feel like it's one of the most important ones. Uh, yeah, it's one of those topics that there's no real great way to to do it. Now, Virginia is weird because we're pretty much the only state where you can do anything you want. You can receive as big of a check from any person or company you want, and then go and spend that money on literally anything you want. And all you have to do is report it, say that you did it. So there's a Republican former delegate who is currently running for lieutenant governor, Tim Hugo, who was frequently blasted for spending his campaign contributions on groceries and dry cleaning. <laughs> Here, but here's a catch, because it's always more complicated than it sounds, right? So delegates and senators in Virginia only make $17,000 a year. Mm. And that system favors people that already have a lot of money. Well, guess what? If you want right. people who don't have a lot of money to have a voice in the General Assembly, that means you're going to need to let people spend their campaign cash subsidizing their own life. So there's oh. huge implications, right? It's really easy for us as people with privilege to say, oh no, they shouldn't be able to do that. They should have very strict controls on what they can spend it on. But then people in lower income communities would be up a creek because they would not even be able to afford to represent their communities in government. All right. So I'm just going to give a plug for your podcast now. Uh, one of my biggest beefs, uh, just as a life coach, is um, oversimplification of the way we perceive things. And I'm so grateful for anyone that can help me see uh, complexity and nuance in things. And boom, that is one of my favorite things about Transition Virginia. Oh, thank you, Brian. I'm very nice of you to say. 
And I'm glad you brought up something about gun control because we have you on for, of course, Gundam. <laughs> Good segue. <laughs> yeah. Is this your first uh, experience with Gundam or is this your first experience with anime? Do you have any history with anime? Any like formative works for you? Okay. So this is not my first experience with anime. This is my first experience with Gundam. Mm, when awesome. I was growing up in the 1990s, I missed the boat on all things Gundam. And then as I got older, to me, it was like, oh, that's a kid's show. Why would I want to go watch that? And mm -hmm. obviously that wasn't necessarily correct. It was just my impression. Yeah, same here. Yeah, I'm so grateful that you guys had me watch this. As far as formative early exposures to anime, I would say that Psyche K... Okay is probably one of my favorite ones. <laughs> uh, one Punch was one of my very early anime exposures. And then Full Metal Alchemist. Everybody says you're supposed to watch Brotherhood. I haven't done that one yet. Oh my. Well, I've seen plenty, but those are some of the early ones that hooked me. And I said, okay, I, I appreciate this genre as an art form and the stories that you can tell through it in a way that you can't really do through... Um, uh, live action or even like mm -hmm. most U.S. animation outfits don't do stories like this. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then of course, Death Note was the one that I just thought was the most badass thing I'd ever seen of all time. Yeah. You like a good detective story? Yeah. And I mean, satiates my bloodlust. So. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Red flooded American. I got you. <laughs> I, I need to have some kind of outlet for it as a peaceful human being myself. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> or there would be mayhem in the street. <laughs> that was definitely one of my gateway animes as well. Yeah, there's something about uh, something imported from another culture, like maybe buy-in gets granted a little more easily. I don't know. That's the case in my experience. I've always thought that it's like something else to grind your mind against. Mm. Like you can make fewer assumptions. And so you have to work harder to understand it, which just, you know, makes it naturally more engaging. Interesting. Uh, anything that we wanted to go over before we get into the main discussion? Um. I think this will come up in today's discussion, but just my own little recap of the series so far is um, there's a lot of interesting uh, political parallels. Alex has stated before, it's not an exact like one-to-one -one, uh, metaphor, but um, mm -hmm. uh, when I look at this, I see a lot of parallels to like Japan leading up to World War II, uh, specifically the different children of uh, Degwin. Uh, each of his children seem to be very much like different military factions or secret societies or political groups that led Japan into World War II and their, their own imperial campaign. I think that that's my personal um, last week on. That's definitely there. There aren't many one-to-one -one clean allegories. Mm -hmm. And so there are a lot of different angles to view it from. You know, like the zombies can be seen as a critique of aristocracy culture, mm -hmm. but they also have more specific analogs, those Japanese forces or, or factions leading up to World War II, right? Yeah. So Thomas, I know that your, your uh, political perspective is probably more refined than mine. The, the, the story that I've seen up to at least to episode three, it was just very reminiscent of some things that are happening in our country, like socially, politically, several different obscure groups that might not normally have anything in common, sort of getting together under one flag and doing something like storming the Capitol. It just, it really stood out to me. Yeah, and 
there was a lack of nuance in a lot of the political speeches and very clear attempts to manipulate, at least to us as the viewer. And Mm -hmm. the people just take it hook, line, and sinker and just go right on in. Everybody thinks they're doing the right thing. You've got the Federation is trying to protect the Federation. And Mm -hmm. they're also attacked, and I won't spoil that for future episodes, they're attacked in terrible ways. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this reminded me a lot of if you guys have ever seen The Expanse, just with, you know, like you (laughs) have your like, your space colony Uh culture, and then you have like Earth culture, and and just there's always a little bit of a competition there. It reminded me a lot of that, actually. So You are not the first guest to bring that up. That's cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) Oh, good. I'm glad I didn't pull it out of my butt. (laughs) So we start off with a shot of Kaecilia, right? Mm -hmm. And she's sort of ominously stating that Coswell cannot be suffered to live. And she's giving orders to unseen agents. Coswell cannot return here alive. So just like with the previous episode, when Raul met with Anaheim, it provoked an attack. And now we have, Mm -hmm. are we calling him Edward or... Edward Kospal, soon we'll be calling him Char. It's all quite confusing. It's okay. Yeah. So that's the case. Like him going off to Loom is provoking the assassination attempt. Yeah. Like if you kind of do what the power structure says, if you be a good little person, then you might get to live right under (laughs) their thumb. And that's kind of the start of this theme that you pointed out in the outline that we'll see throughout the episode. Uh, domination and submissive uh, dynamic, right? Mm -hmm. And that's one of them. Like uh, the zombies are the dominant force. In the colonies, yeah. Uh, We get Kosval and Char, Mm -hmm. right? Going to board a passenger liner and they're stopped at security by the attendant who has found a firearm in Char's luggage. The way that Char leaves the luggage for just a second. So I think we're meant to believe that Kosval planted the firearm Mm. to set up this whole uh, misunderstanding because he had noticed on their way in that there were people watching them and talking about them. Yeah. So Thomas, uh, I hope this doesn't offend you or make you blush, but sometimes when I see Char Kosval, it it reminds me of you. Well, you know, this scene was the first scene in the whole show that wowed me. It just really reveals how morally gray this character is, because normally Mm -hmm. when you see a perspective character, you're supposed to identify with them as you assume they're the good guy or the person that you're supposed to identify with. And this was the first Mm -hmm. scene where I'm not necessarily just passively watching what's going on. He's trying to escape. I didn't know they were just going to kill him or try to kill him, but he makes the identity swap. And the ship goes off and gets blown up. And Char Mm -hmm. had a feeling that was probably going to happen. That was the first time I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, he took this innocent guy. and Yeah, he was a good guy. Yeah, just plants him in this, like, in this situation that he knows he's never going to survive. And then just goes off, you know, and deliberately lets this guy die. Of course, to save his own skin. He's got his own reasons. But it reveals the first morally great twist, in my opinion, in the whole series or at least the one that hooked me as like okay this episode's gonna be badass well i can tell you that it's uh it's a little bit worse than that in the manga in the manga like char and casval sit down at a cafe at the terminal and you know uh, casval slash edward is just laying on the charm 
kind of like being a, a sociopath is how he comes off. Oh, definitely. But he's just lying straight to this guy's face. And then like the other thing is, oh my God, all the other innocent passengers on this transport ship, there's like children on this thing. Yeah. You know, I took notes while I was watching this and I, I actually took a note specifically at that moment. I have minute 930. Am I allowed to cuss on here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we encourage. Holy shit. Drugs that's fucked up. That was my only note. Yeah. And symbolically strong scene, right? Because not only are we showing the descent or, or the rise, right, of this uh, sociopath, mm-hmm. we've been working through the, the first episode and the second episode. There are moments where we see what he will become. And we're leading up to like two things being forefront in his mind. And that's the memory of his father mm-hmm. and the need for revenge for what he, how he feels he's been slighted. Yeah. And in order for Char to be born, Kosfal or Edward must die. So we see some of this in real world history, like um, the Japanese military, there were factions that wanted to take the Manchurian Peninsula. And this is not a conspiracy theory. Like we've got confirmation through confession that there were uh, high ranking officers that enacted a false flag operation. They blew up a, a Japanese civilian train and blamed it on the Russians to outrage the people to get them behind this military campaign to take them the Manchurian Peninsula. Hmm. I guess if you've read like Confessions of an Economic Hitman, like there's just dozens of stories similarly, like for, I don't know if that's, you call it political gain, but it's at least economic gain. Oh yeah. And that's going to come up again uh, when we have our other collateral damage, big misunderstanding, right? Mm-hmm. I love the design of passenger things in space like they don't have to be aerodynamic so they just get to be giant pods Mm -hmm. (laughs) love it um but out of the explosion right we see again bookending the scene kaecilia's visage we would have spared you had you lived out your life in obscurity in texas my poor unfortunate casval so i didn't get this until the third time i watched through it but this episode is unlike the previous two episodes and i assume unlike uh what's coming up there's much less female screen time in this one because mm. um, we're not following Artesia. Astraya is already dead, but like Kaecilia and, and uh, uh, Sela are still there mm. and you'd think we would spend more time with them. But instead, I think that's a very purposeful choice on the part of the uh, script writer because one, we're going to this military academy and there are female military cadets, but it is a very hyper-masculine place. Yeah. Dozel Zabi is the uh, the headmaster. But my point was that uh, this rise of Char dealing with this uh, submission and domination uh, uh, dynamic, he is finding ways that he can dominate while appearing to be submissive. Mm. And that could just as well be Kaecilia's story because she grew up in this family as the only daughter and she continually had to find places where she could excel, but she could appear as though she was placating her siblings and father. Mm. It's very Sun Tzu, mm. very Art of War. Oh. Can you expand on that? Well, yeah, I, yeah. And one of the principles in Art of War is when you're strong, make everybody else think you're weak. And when you're weak, make everybody think you're strong. Mm-hmm. It's that principle exactly, right? When you are getting what you want, you want to make the other person think you're placating them and vice versa. Fascinating. Well, Alex, I think your observation maybe answers the next question I had because uh, there's a scene that's cut out of the manga uh, that has to do with Artesia slash Sela. She gets this premonition that something bad is going to happen 
begs Mr. Osnabel to take her to the terminal. She arrives just in time to see the transport blow up, just to add to her suffering. <laughs> but it does take away the spotlight away from this masculinity narrative. Right, right, right. Oh, but it, it is a nice uh, period or bookend on uh, Artesia's sorrow. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not only to be like, oh, my brother is leaving, but then the next day to be like, oh, he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> But the, I guess the only purpose that I would see for that, well, other than her sorrow and suffering, but like it does kind of confirm the suspicion that she's a new type. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's our magic word of the day. So like, Thomas, are you caught up on this new type phenomenon? Go ahead and address it I, and educate me on it as well. Yeah. So from episode one, um, Daikun, the, the Xeon uh, prophet slash philosopher, uh, foretells the coming of a new evolution of humanity, like a new type of human And his vision specifically is like an evolution of consciousness, uh, empathy, having empathy towards the fellow person uh, to the point where, you know, we can feel so profoundly what another person is feeling. It'll eliminate the needs of hierarchies and governments and militaries. And so uh, we move along to Kasval, Edward, now Char, has made it to the military academy, the ZMA, the Zeon Military Academy. I Correct. Think. I didn't know if there was any importance to this, or they just wanted to highlight him being the the standout. But he's late to this orientation. Obviously, he missed the first flight, the one that blew up. Mm-hmm. But then, if he was going to be late, wouldn't he be like a whole day late, not like five minutes <laughs> late to the orientation? Uh, I mean, it could be like he was a whole day late and like that was the the move in day. You know, I'm just thinking of like the way colleges work and stuff like that. Space time's mm-hmm. just uh, different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wibbly wobbly. There's also a lot of oxygen based explosions in space in this whole anime, which would never really happen. I fa- there's a lot of fire in space. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we open on Girin actually giving this opening speech to the cadets. Uh, and he sounds very much like Hitler or Mussolini or Donald Trump or, you know, name a, a, a fascist or semi-fascist leader. And they say these exact things like, they're not the elite, you're the elite. Colony dwellers have gone from being called the dispossessed becoming the chosen people. Don't ever let anyone tell you you're not the elite because I'm telling you, you know, subtly implying I'm the only person you need to listen to. Mm. But he doesn't get the fanfare that he I think he's expecting. And then Dozel takes over speaking and he does get the response that I think Girin was looking for, mm. which I think sets up later why Girin is so upset with Dozel and the production of the mobile workers. But we also get Dozel kind of embarrassing Federation functionaries because they just have to be there. It's a state function. You know, they have to be there to observe or maybe specifically it's General Revel or Admiral Revel, Mm -hmm. I think, who's like the commander of the Federation Space Forces, I think. Dozel like doms him basically uh, on stage and then that must get him mad for further uh, uh, like future encounters. Yeah, he... um... The purpose of like the Xeon Defense Force is for policing like space piracy, local troubles. And then Dozel just brazenly just says it out loud. He's like, no, we're raising a fighting force to defend Xeon. And he just says it right in front of Revel. And also in the background is the guy who later shows up at the uh, academy 
Oh, he's one of those. The one who yeah, humili- I, tries to humiliate Caswell. I should. Or, yeah, uh, he's got a long uh, title. I don't remember. It's like the adjunct military <laughs> such and such. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Yeah, he's just representing the Federation's interest. It's a lot of lot of posturing. Yeah, and we move right along. So we get the core. I don't know dynamic that we're gonna get in this episode, which is the one between Char and Garma which is a long-standing thing and something that I'm glad they took all the time to, I guess, propagate like in, in this episode because we get their relationship in the original series, but it's definitely not as deep as this. So I've got a strange perspective on this scene. One of my favorite shows is a, is a dating show from LA called Dating No Filter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's just a lot of different uh, types of dating couples that they pair up. And um, I don't know a lot about like LGBTQ dating culture, uh, but a reoccurring thing on the show is like uh, two homosexual guys do this sort of routine to figure out who's a top and who's a bottom. Mm. And again, like, I don't know the the social norms of that community, but um, they don't just like come out, say like, I'm a top or I'm a bottom. I mean, sometimes they do, but it's also like there's these certain types of questions and like tells uh, to establish what they're looking for in a relationship. So I don't know what it was about these scenes. I just felt like there's this weird testing of like who's going to be the top and who's going to be the bottom. You know, and with Garma being a, basically a spoiled rich kid, mm-hmm. do you think that's a social commentary on like how the aristocracy behaves. Perhaps this is behavior of the aristocracy, which Char is not. And mm-hmm. so Char's kind of very much just doing his own thing throughout this whole boot camp. And Garma is like all over him. Like at first he's threatened by him, then he wants to be him. Mm-hmm. Do you think this is some kind of social commentary on that? That's the vibe I'm feeling. Yeah, yeah, quite astute. Uh, I can't remember where I got it, but uh, there are classes, right? We have uh, like the bourgeoisie, the owning class, and we have the working class. And if you are a minority within one of those classes, if you're bourgeoisie and you're trans, or if you're uh, working class and you're trans, you know, you get more leeway if you are richer, essentially. So there's another podcast I like <laughs> called Shameless uh-huh. Sex. And um they sometimes have like doms come on the show and out of the four or five episodes I've heard with that, it seems like it's almost exclusively like upper class clientele uh, that these people serve, which I don't know, maybe those are the only ones that can afford those services, but I couldn't help to wonder if there was some kind of like profile that went, went along with that. Well, Mm. especially if it's taboo in society. Oh yeah. Then the rich people can afford to get away with it. Like that's, I think Mm. that's the bigger commentary right there is that, to me, this was written very much from a class conscious working class perspective of what the aristocracy might do with their time. Mm-hmm. If you're thinking that, oh, you know, rich people can get away with anything and do whatever they want, that might be what you're writing into Garma. If Garma, mm-hmm. well, if, if Garma is at, at the very least bi curious, mm-hmm. not only is that on Garma, but that's also on the people who wrote the show and the manga. Mm-hmm to put that into the aristocracy. I found that part really interesting, right? And again, Char is just kind of doing his own thing this entire time and <laughs> doesn't know who Garma is necessarily. At least that's what I thought. And Garma's obsessed with Char because he's good, right? And he threatens him the whole time. But also maybe it's, I, I actually didn't get because he was like necessarily sexually curious about him. 
But like, mm. I mean, that doesn't mean he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, I think my perception is probably colored by the manga. It's, it's pretty explicit in the manga. You know, he gets pretty excited about inviting Char over to take a shower and, oh, uh, awesome. <laughs> you know, if I had a buddy come over and they needed to use the shower, I probably wouldn't hang out in the bathroom while they're showering to talk with them and <laughs> play with my hair while they're sudding up. <laughs> hey, my shower is broken. Can I? Uh, no, um, okay. They compete at several things, even though, you know, ostensibly they're not competing. There's a basketball game, um, but the clothes they're wearing and the way it highlights the male form is very fan service mm. I don't know. The Again and again, this show shows me, I like to think that it is prophesying the future. Like it's really talking about today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in this supposed future, there is still this hyper-masculinity uh, that damages people as they're developing because they don't have kind of healthy outlets for it. And so all of these feelings that people have for each other, these young men mostly, they get tamped down and they either become rivalries or at best they become like combat solidarity. Mm. And then we meet... Uh, uh, I guess for the second time, but now he becomes closer to the plot. Lino Fernandez yeah. or Lino? What is that? Lino? 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 Okay. Yeah, he's actually not in the manga. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so they added another character for Char to kill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Someone else to sacrifice. Yeah. So they have a very short scene where Char is putting eye drops in his eyes for no actual reason, right? Is this just for show? Yeah. Okay. So uh, we actually skipped this um, in the Char Garma competition. Uh, when Charma's yes men come up to force the apology out of Char, one of them puts their hand on Char's shoulder and he, he gives mm-hmm. him the weird look and the guy has a physical reaction from it. And that mm-hmm. was telling me like, oh, this guy is specifically a new type. Like Char's using mm-hmm. his new type ability to freak this guy out. And another example of doming while appearing to be submissive, mm-hmm. right? Like he waves off essentially their beef with him, but he says it in a way like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't realize I was doing that. My mistake. Oh, but that's when Lino decides that his premonition, his theory is correct, that this is not Char, that this is someone else, right? And so now he has his information. He does his little sexy dance. And then he decides on his own that he's going to go do research about this. And then is it the dark colony after that? Extra Banshee. Dozel is extra Banshee. He's the supersized Banshee. And we get Girin visibly upset with Dozel, telling him that this entire project that we think is going to change the face of warfare is going to be canceled, right? Mm -hmm. He's kind of using this opportunity to reassert his dominance over Dozel, but we get a kind of a reversal, right? Like he comes to tell Dozel what to do, but then Dr. Manovsky, who's the actual expert in this field. Yeah. So this is like just a commentary on different types of authority, right? So like Minovsky has like technical authority, but no given charismatic or title authority. Um, mm-hmm. Dozel has no charismatic authority at all. Like he might have certain rank, but he can't advocate for himself or speak on behalf of this project he's working so hard on. But yeah, like Giren is the one with like the title authority. Yeah. Do you ever find that interviewing anyone for your other podcast that people at the top who are authorized to speak on a subject sometimes know 
the least out of that organization on what is actually happening on that subject? Well, we haven't necessarily encountered that, but I understand the phenomenon uh, you're referring to, and I've definitely encountered it during my time in government. And I think you see that more at the cabinet level, right? So what you'll Mm. see is like the higher up you go, especially once they're political appointees, they're walking into a bureaucracy that predates them and is going to survive them especially like Virginia's governor only serves one term or a president that only serves two terms. The career Mm -hmm. bureaucracy will say, well, you can say and do whatever you want to say and do. We're just going to keep doing our thing. And by the way, you can't remove me because I'm not a political appointee. Right. And so there's definitely a lot more knowledge, granular knowledge down the ranks than there is at the Mm -hmm. top. But I mean, it, it depends on whatever you want to talk about. So my show, we usually talk We do get into um, nuance and specificity of policy, but we try to keep it at an approachable and understandable level that even the cabinet secretaries can answer to. Oh, right. Is this a problem with media in America? Like my perception, and this is maybe just my cynicism, is like the higher up in political authority someone gets, it seems like the more oversimplified their views become. Or is that just because of the delivery system that we have? I would say that more of that is due to the delivery system where media wants a 10 second soundbite and it keeps Mm -hmm. getting shorter. At one point it was like 30 second sound bites when I was in college. That's what they told you people wanted. But now it it keeps getting less and less because people just want the quick pop. And so they interview the people at the top because that's who carries the weight and that's who commands the authority. But then they only want to give them 10 seconds to talk. So if you're at that level, you need to be able to say your talking point in 10 seconds or so. So that doesn't really lend itself to a lot of nuance. That's why we spend 40 minutes on our show with these people. Um, That's not necessarily something you're going to get on cable news. Even a show like Rachel Maddow, where she goes deep into like only two or three topics over the course of an hour, it's Mm -hmm. still TV. Oh, absolutely. You still have to be approachable. So my next notes pick up around the 34 minute mark where um, there's the organized insubordination. So we'll, we'll get there. Let, let me okay. comment on this one thing that the 30 K hike, this is where this whole Dob sub uh, thing sort of came out. Garma uh, sneaks out while it's still raining to get ahead of char slips, breaks his leg. Uh, there's the tension where char looks like he's going to kill him, mm-hmm. but he creates the little, uh, tent to protect Garma from the rain and uh, Mm -hmm. Garma's not tied down like his arms aren't broken but he just stays in this position (laughs) that's like uh, a BDSM situation to me and and it just felt like there was no reason for it and like Garma is shouting at Char and his expressed angers all over the place but then it's like Char's kindness that breaks him and uh, Garma sort of becomes the sub. He He's in pain. He's got a broken leg and everything. But once Char sets up the tent and he realizes exactly what's happening, he kind of has a moment of peace where he's back in the role that he is more comfortable with. Yeah. So we go straight from this 30K scene to Garma deciding that he's going to be Char's new roommate. And just mm-hmm. the way he announces it, like, we're bunking together. Well, that's a weird way of putting it. But again, <laughs> like, so Char's just coming out of the shower. He's just wearing a towel. And because of the imagery of the last scene, I was looking at this with through different eyes. And I had to pause it and play it back a few times. But, like, Garma's helpers 
have these like weird looks on their faces as they're moving karma stuff in. Oh, like, like they know something naughty's going to happen. I don't know. It was, it was bizarre. Uh, I was like, Oh, okay. Like maybe they know Garma's secrets and like, they're there to cover for him. And Garma's clearly used mm-hmm. to always getting his way. Right. Like he's the only person yeah. that gets mm-hmm. to choose to switch his bunk assignment. Yeah. <laughs> clearly. There's more to read into that. If you're used to getting your way, you're switching your bunk assignment. You've got this weird sexual tension with this person who, like two scenes prior to that, you were convinced was going to try to kill you if they got the opportunity. <laughs> like, I mean, maybe what you see is somebody who's misassigned to their role, right? So maybe this person mm-hmm. is being bred to be a dom, but like they just want to be a sub. They're told their culture tells them they've got to be on top, but maybe they don't want to be on top, right? Maybe they want to be yeah. taken care of. You mentioned the hyper masculinity kind of like screwing them up. But if he's coming from like a very hierarchical elite family, which is going mm-hmm. to be hyper masculine and there's no room for weakness, he's probably been indoctrinated to say that like if you ever show weakness, somebody's going to hurt you or take advantage of you or whatever. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's got something to do with what he's reading into Shar which Char doesn't feel at all. Like there's no reciprocated emotion even from Char. Interesting. So the, the tent scene on the 30K hike, um, Garma, just through circumstances, had to be vulnerable in front of Char and it worked out. Mm-hmm. Man, all right. So I'm just, I'm thinking this, this hyper-masculinity, like Kaecilia has to be hyper-masculine. Yes. Right? And all the body language of Garma, we see it's like being associated with like feminine kind of body language. And he's just not allowed to be who he is. Right. And in the first episode, when Kaecilia and Garma are in the same car, she's the one who teaches him. Mm, right. So, I mean, this situation's a win for Char, too. Like, he's now away from the watchful eyes of Lino Fernandez. Yeah, absolutely. And we're seeing that. Uh, I'm so glad you brought it up, Thomas, that Sun Tzu, the dynamic of weakness and strength and the actuality versus the kind of performance or display of it, because, you know, Garma wants to appear uh, strong. And so he does this thing, but it actually puts him in a position where Char has a better eye on him. Mm. Whereas, like you said, Char either doesn't feel or is not displaying any of those feelings. Uh, we get a little break from all these male bodies, all this male interaction, uh, just to witness very quickly Sayla's graduation. Mm-hmm. And this is where it hit me. I was like, this episode is dominated by men. Yeah. So again, like another hint that Sayla is a new type. She just has this feeling that like her brother is still out there. Sister. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the war games. The, the cadets are clearly outgunned. Mm-hmm. They're not expected to win. Is it supposed to be like a Kobayashi Maru situation? Yeah, they're probably supposed to lose. And in losing, that's where the teaching moment comes from, right? And instead, Char's willingness to sacrifice, you know, to play chess, yeah. to sacrifice the pieces you need to sacrifice when they need to be sacrificed, he's able to outwit them. Mm. So I, I took this as another part of like the Dom Sub uh, theme that the Federation is conditioning the new generation of soldiers. Like you will never win against us. We're going to rehearse you fighting against us and you're going to be outgunned, outclassed, outmatched. And that's just your role. Uh, And then of course, Char is the one to upset that 
dynamic. At the end of all of that, he questions like, why would you put us up against a superior force like this? Like we're never <laughs> like we're supposed to be fighting space pirates. Like we would never go up against a force like this. And, and he says it out loud, right? Which mm-hmm. when you gain an insight like that, sometimes you should keep it to yourself if you figured something out that gives you an advantage over your opponent. But he levels the playing field for the whole group and undermines the Federation. So yeah. mm-hmm. do you think that this was his plan all along? Or do you think he just starts building the plane while he flies it? I think Char's an opportunist. Well, I mean, he is a strategist too, though. Sure, sure, sure. There's some strategy to him, but his whole character arc is being in the right place at the right time, which goes to like his lineage, right? He is the son of Zianzum Daikun. And it shows that they're even though they have separate goals, they're going to have a symbiotic relationship. Not only Garma and uh, Char, but also Char and Zeon as a whole. Because Zeon, as the weaker force, it needs the Federation to act first. It needs them to overstep their bounds or to show their hand. But Garma is not in a position to make them do this. So he needs Char as this agent provocateur. And Char is all too happy. You know, he does that look again. He mm-hmm. challenges this commander. The commander hits him, physically can't restrain himself. He's so angry. And what does Char do when he gets hit? He just gives him that sideways glance like, well, that's what I was looking for. He stops speaking and allows Garma to step forward. So Char's just definitely naturally gifted at social judo too, right? So there's- Oh yeah, hell yes. Because <laughs> he, he uses yeah. the momentum of, of the situation to his favor. And like Garma is the like social dominant figure of the group in public. And so mm-hmm. he knows that if he can get Garma to speak up for him, it's just like, well, it'd be like <laughs> if- if you were a backbencher in politics and you get slapped down, well, this would never happen probably in real life, but if AOC, everybody likes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? But she isn't the speaker, right? She isn't the caucus chair. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. there's more strength in AOC in a situation like this, if we were to compare like AOC as Char, right? Uh, there's strength yeah. in being able to keep your mouth shut, know you're on the right side of the perception and let the legally strong entity speak up for you. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I was originally unresolved on this question between Char being more of an opportunist and a strategist. I think I'm going to go with strategist though. He's the synthesis. <laughs> yeah. So he, he goes to the, the orientation and he sees Dozel like say out loud, like this is what the real reason of the ZMA is in front of Revel and the other Federation officers. He sees the guy getting upset about that and like, oh, well now there's something you can leverage. Now we can go to this evaluation of the war games, you know, and I can say this thing out loud just like Dozel did. And I know that this guy's going to lose his shit. Well, yeah, and in that way, even the exercise appears to be one thing, but ends up being another, right? It yeah. is supposed to be this show that the Federation is stronger, yeah. but it ends up being good training for the underdog yes. force. Yes, right, so that's exactly where I was going. Thank you. So I'm seeing Char play this long game with his strategy. He wants Zeon to go to war with the Federation, but there's got to be these steps that, that take place. Like there's got to be these little victories that happen to lead up to it. Like Dozel s- says out loud what everyone's thinking. 
and there's the first victory. And then you do this war game that you're designed to lose and they have another victory. And then mm-hmm. during the evaluation, like he says out loud his thing, right? And gets slapped. And then they, all the cadets shame this Federation guy <laughs> who has authority over them. And that's another victory. And they start getting emboldened to where they're finally ready to take on this freaking Federation garrison, like mm-hmm. 2000 against 200. That's good. Um, rule just in life too. Early success is like yeast, right? Mm. Early success is compound to become big successes future or in the future. So mm-hmm. if this is something that Char knows and understands too, then his whole goal through all, all of this, if he does want a war, if he does want some independence, is just to get on base, right? He doesn't need to hit a grand slam every time. <laughs> That's his entire goal is just to like get those early victories to set himself up. Yeah. If if we're interpreting him as a grand strategist, this comports with that because it is perfect strategy. So I, I'm seeing a juxtaposition between this uh, Lino Fernandez person and, and Char. So Char, like he does a sneak attack to win the war games, right? And in this mm-hmm. scene, I feel like we see Lino doing his own little social sneak attack to set up Char to like test and confirm his theory that he's not really Char. And he succeeds. And again, we, we see people saying things out loud that maybe they should have kept to themselves, but it works out well for them, like with Dozel and Char and Garma. But then we have this guy, Lino, who also says things out loud. He starts using Char's name, Casval. He starts saying Casval out loud way too much, and it ends badly for him. Mm-hmm. Like, are we there yet in the story? Like, um, We're almost there. Okay. So there's this inciting incident. Uh, that gives Char and Garma another opportunity to up the stakes, uh, to up the Mm. conflict. And that's this accident that happens outside of one of the colonies. I can actually comment on this. (laughs) So this is worse in the manga. There's a meteor coming and it's going to hit Munzo. And just Char being Char, he knows that it's coming. And he talks to Garma about it. He's like, hey, you know, this thing is going to come. It's going to hit Munzo. Garma's blowing it up. He's like, oh, there's people in charge. They monitor. They know it's, they'll have the colony mm-hmm. move. And it hits the section that has like the agricultural food storage and it oh. freaking blows it up. Right. And then the people freak out. And then there's the cleanup operation happening. And then that's when the other incident happens. Like the Federation supposedly is coming to help, you know, because uh-huh. of this disaster but what what help do they send they send a battle cruiser yeah that's weird <laughs> and and that's when the traffic the air traffic control thing happens or space traffic control yeah and then Girin uh uses this as an excuse to fan the flames oh, yeah. right they have a meeting of the munzo diet and again we get federation functionaries who have to be there for appearance purposes just sitting there listening to someone drum up or uh, beat the war drums. So this is the thing that worries me the most about like real world politics. Like maybe there was a, a real honest accident or maybe there's some like big calamity, but gosh, this stuff is so easily to exploit by people with their own political agendas. So like this happened in Japan leading up to World War II. There was an earthquake. And for whatever reason, certain leaders of military factions are like, see, this is proof that uh, the gods want us to go to war with the Westerners. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> what? And people bought it, man. Yeah. So I mean, I'm thinking back to 9-11, right? 
Okay. The, the, the events of the day happened and I saw the initial news reports and uh, I was like, oh, Afghanistan did this. We need to bomb Afghanistan back to the stone age. I remember having these thoughts and feelings. Things got crazy, right? And like, mm-hmm. I remember like the Patriot Act and Thomas, I, I know you maybe don't remember this, but I think, and you were the first person to suggest to me that the Patriot Act was not actually in our best interests, which I do. I do not believe these things anymore. Ironically, I was a conservative <laughs> back then. And I said, this is a bad idea. Wow. Young prodigy. You are absolutely right. It was a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and the incident you're talking about, well, much like social judo, it's political judo, right? And there are mm-hmm. good and bad applications to it. And I would say that when you're in a position where you're constantly chasing popular support, just generally speaking, regardless of how you're applying it, it becomes second nature to you, right? And there are times where mm-hmm. the tail can wag the dog too. You might have a situation where maybe a disaster happens. And I know I'm speaking broadly because it it's got a broad application. Mm-hmm. You want to achieve some kind of outcome and harnessing that popular support is hard to do even on a quiet day. And so mm-hmm. now you have this inciting incident and you're like, oh, never let a crisis go to waste. Oh man, that's yeah. it. Yes. Sometimes there's something like really maleficent there. <laughs> but like sometimes everybody just gets in over their heads. And I, I saw that mm-hmm. theme a lot of how everything kept spiraling out of control. You know, so when the Federation ship destroys that agricultural block, it starts anti-Federation demonstrations and the police go in and repress brutally once the demonstrations start. And I th- oh yeah. Like and I thought, well, if you look to the events of this past summer with Black Lives Matter, it's not the only time in American mm-hmm. history where we've actually had a very similar outcome when the police get involved. And it makes me think that like perhaps this is something that crosses cultural boundaries and it might be more reminiscent of humans. Like the harder you try to grip down the more you tighten your grip talk the more star systems will slip through your fingers. Well, it's like trying to squeeze silly putty, right? Like it just kind of mm-hmm. starts squirting out of your, out of the like fingers and stuff like that. And you can't hold it. You can't hold water. Malcolm Gladwell did an interesting talk about this. He was citing research from the Rand Corporation, Authority and Rebellion. It was the playbook that the British used when they were trying to suppress the uh, political unrest in Ireland. And just like mm. had, had the, like you were saying, had the opposite effect just like the hard, cruel response was radicalizing and, and creating more violence. And uh, I guess Gladwell's sort of point was like, well, you know, the old saying, like, if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. It's like, why did we put people in charge of these decisions, the ones who, like, it's their whole life and career of, like, dominating through violence? Like, why didn't we have diplomats and conflict resolution people like working on this problem instead of generals. And I mean, because that's how empires are made, right? If those people weren't in charge of all of the decisions leading up to the British empire being what it is, those people would not be in the positions to crack down on, I guess, insurrections, things like that. Well, I do have some good news. Um, One, this is going to sound weird saying it, it was good news, but there was a devastating earthquake in Turkey a few years ago. And instead of Turkey sending like an organized military force to help get people into refugee camps and get their needs met, they sent in teams of psychologists. And, you know, a few years later, there's just these amazing breakthroughs in treating PTSD because of the rapid application mentality they had for treating people in crisis. 
you know, Minneapolis completely changed their police department. So they're not even going to dispatch cops. They're going to be sending social workers now to the vast majority of situations. Thank you, Minneapolis. (laughs) Yeah. So they're going to send cops to check on you if your family's concerned and haven't heard from you in a while. And they're going to send cops to like situations that call for somebody with a gun. Wow. Garma and Char spent a little bit of time uh, working cleanup duty after the Federation cruiser crashes. Uh, and that's where Char gets his first glimpse at... What's that over there? Mobile workers. Garma confirms probably a suspicion that Char already had, which was they can be re-outfitted for military application. Yeah, so just a little bit of lore background of the Universal Century... There was some event that led to a treaty. Uh, Military vessels are not allowed to dock at colonies, and there's not supposed to be any military like R&D on colonies. Uh, That's supposed to be done on Earth. But of course, a lot of people want to because it's easier to develop things in zero G, uh, specifically uh, refining of metals because of the way molecules cool in zero G and the way air bubbles work and all that bullshit. Oh. (laughs) I guess this is a spoiler, but uh, the Federation does it anyway. That is fascinating. Uh, We see an assault carrier, again, a cruiser, but instead of being a battleship, it's a troop carrier headed straight for, I think, Moonzo. Mm -hmm. And it shifts into Degwin Zabi talking to Girin, and Degwin is telling Girin flat out, Rein them in, Girin. Because if we keep doing this, it will read as a declaration of war to the Federation. All right, so the positioning of like military force is itself seen as an act of aggression because it's scary, right? First thing that comes to mind is the Cuban Missile Crisis. People know like, oh, well, the Russians put these nukes right on our front doorstep. A lot of people don't know. The other part of that story is like, we put a bunch of nukes in Turkey, the Soviet Union's doorstep. So this this troop carrier, when there's already a garrison on Munzo, this new thing showing up, that's really freaking aggressive. I have a question about the story as far as what I don't know about later mm. in the show. So like, are there other colonies or and other space stations that are not colonies? Are there specifically military space stations in this world? There are at least one. I think there's two moon cities. We are the Moonanites. <laughs> They're from the moon. Uh, and there is a an asteroid that's placed in an orbital path around the Earth. So it acts as a second moon. Okay. And I think that those are military staging grounds for Federation activities. Okay. So orbiting satellites, the colonies are specifically just supposed to be civilian, but military contractors like Anaheim Electronics have probably more power than the legitimate Federation and they just kind of do whatever they want. Okay. Yeah. So there's this escalation of tensions and Char sees this as yet another opportunity, right? Correctly gauging the flow of uh, popular support. So he's thinking if they're going to be aggressive over there, now is our time to strike. The assault carrier that they see go by with all those troops on it to suppress Munzo, uh, these additional forces are coming from Guardian Banshi, yes. where the military academy is. And so now that those forces have left, the military academy now is facing 2,000 troops, whereas before it would have been facing 10,000 or something. Yes. 
So he he correctly predicts this as a, a good time to strike, and he formulates this plan, and then he unveils it to Garma. Attack the Federation's barracks? As Char starts to tell him about this opportunity, they get so close, and Garma gets so uncomfortable. In theater, this would be called kiss or kill distance, or sometimes referred to as the fight or fuck distance. Okay. Like, if you're that close to someone, there's going to be some sort of an eruption. And I wrote in my plans, like, Char proposes the plan to Garma. They probably should have kissed. <laughs> um, and Garma, again, shows that sub mindset because he says, yeah, this sounds cool, but we should probably get my brother. Mm. His mind immediately goes to, oh, well, Dozel would do a much better job. Let's put him in charge. Mm. But Char is having none of that. He's like, nope. Dozel cannot know what's happening. Yeah. It has to be us because Dozel needs deniability. Yeah, it's just like Thomas's AOC comment earlier, right? Yeah. Sorry if I keep bringing up the bringing up the manga too much. No, it's good. There's something else that uh, informs this scene. Garma was just looking at the rankings of the students. Garma's number one, and Char comes in second. Garma asks him, he's like, did you purposely uh, were outspoken to the inspector so that I would take first? Char doesn't say anything. So that's not that's not what Char was doing. <laughs> Char had his own agenda. But <laughs> but Garma takes this as Char's like sort of confession of his affections or something. Oh. Garma feels like, oh, Char did this thing for me. Char actually takes possession of Garma. Oh. So he works Garma into this haughty frenzy. That's when he takes possession of him. He gets Garma to lead an organized militia auto rebellion to stop the Federation from continuing to hurt citizens. So while there's no actual sex or anything, and Garma has given himself over to Char at that point in mm, this show. Absolutely. And no, no sex, no depicted sex, but something I want to come back to when we get to another event uh, coming up. Um, they start the offensive. Garma has that moment of doubt where... Char buttons his top button for him, right? And they get into that kiss or kill proximity. Mm -hmm. I don't remember if this happens in the anime, but in the manga, someone comes in to announce something and the interruption of that moment, like Garma gets very upset. Blue balled him. Uh, Garma addresses the troops right before they go out. And then at the same time, Char, he has one more scene with Lino, right? Mm -hmm. I liked how you put this in the outline. You said Lino crowns Char. Even though he's a threat to Char's identity, because in this scene, he is sussed out that Char is not Char, that Char is actually Casval. He gives Char this uh, mask or crown to help him in the hiding of his identity, help him towards his goals. And the other thing is that Cadet Zena or Zena, I couldn't. Yeah, I think so. it's Zena. Okay, I think they Zena. pronounce it Zena at least. Z-E-N-N-A. Uh, she is a distraction. Uh, she even states, I would much rather be going into combat but I will do this if you think it's what's necessary. And she goes in, as you so eloquently put, she doms Dozel. Yeah. Well, the uh, the Lino scene I thought was really interesting because it just kind of reminded me of like maybe like a private coronation. Mm -hmm. Lino has completely misjudged the situation. <laughs> yes. But it's also not his fault, right? Because he doesn't know that Char is a sociopath. Right. This guy who was willing to let this innocent person take his spot, his friend, right, his to blow up. Right. And so 
Lino is the only person who could stop Char. And he is Char's biggest threat. Char, of course, knows this. But Lino misjudges and throws in with him after revealing that he knows Char's secret, right? So he's, once again, said too much. This time it doesn't work out for him, right? And Yeah, so this gets to the question that I wanted to ask the two of you about disclosure. Like it works out so well for so many other people in this episode and, and so disastrously for Lino. Like what the hell? Why, why did it work out so well for others, but not for Lino? The nature of what he was disclosing could have shattered you know, the glass, right? Like if it were to get out, right? And so that's what makes him dangerous. And the other thing that makes Lino dangerous to Char is that Lena doesn't understand. Lena is kind of an idiot socially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when Char makes his disclosure, he's making that disclosure from a position of strength. Yes. He's revealing this insight he has to undermine the Federation. Well, Lena is not trying to undermine Char. He's trying to give himself over and be subservient to Char. Mm. How much differently does that previous scene go if Char were to go to the commanders and say, hey, I know what you're doing. You're just trying to keep us from ever thinking that we can win against the Federation. And it's okay, right? Like, I'm with you. They would have probably gotten rid of Char. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> Does this happen in the real world politically? Like, you've got an ally that's just not socially intelligent enough to be an asset? Yeah, I mean, I want to be very careful what I say. <laughs> but, okay. But oh, I yeah. mean, the answer is always yes, right? Like you have people of different competencies. Like you don't need any special competency to get into government. You need to get elected. And the skill set to get elected is very different from the skill set for governing. There's often a saying that there's no final victories, no final defeats. There's no permanent friends, nor are there permanent enemies in politics. Ah, what a cold world. Well, yeah. yeah, it's because it's human ambition that you're dealing with and it's institutionalized human ambition. We've come up with a way to harness that energy wow. to govern society. Institutionalized human ambition. I've never heard it put that way. I mean, that's how I would characterize it. And like the type of people that you're going to get in that pool are very ambitious to begin with. (laughs) Ain't that the truth. Yeah. And we see that dynamic mimicked everywhere in society where there is kind of a limit of informational flow, right? Like gambling, you know, there's an old saying, if you can't tell who the rube is at the table, it's you. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Lino's the rube. Oh God. Well, and also these two people are, more or less the same age, right? Yes. So if Lino were ambitious and Char doesn't know whether or not he is necessarily, but he does know that he knows his secret. And so if you're the same age, that means you're going to exist around the same timeline, which means let's bring this back to politics. Like say you wanted to be governor and say we're the same age uh, or near the same age, Alex, say I told you I wanted to be governor, but I didn't know that you also wanted to be governor. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. Like, so it's one of those things like I like Alex could say, I'll help you be governor and then he will never be governor. Or I'll say, Alex, I'll help you be governor and then I will never be governor. You're like there's not mm-hmm. enough time for us both to have our moment in the sun. Right. And so if if you've misjudged that the character of that other person or the ambitions of that other person, you're toast because you've now revealed what you want or, you know, when if if you show somebody what you want, 
they know how to manipulate you. Absolutely. Every revelation is a risk. Well, like, Man. I mean, if, and especially if you're like still young in your career, like both of these people are, right? They're still in, yes. they're still in boot camp, they're in military school or military academy. When you're especially really young in your career, that's a really dangerous thing to reveal your actual ambition. You know, Brian and I go way back, and I don't know if you necessarily want to get on this get into this on the podcast, but there was one time Brian had us do an exercise and he had all of his students write down their top 10 fears and top 10 ambitions and burn them. You remember that, Brian? <laughs> oh. I don't, but that does sound like something I would have done. Yeah. Well, Sounds I mean, like some culty shit. What was the purpose? <laughs> well, and, and, well the, like the top 10 fears and top 10 ambitions, it didn't matter what they were, but I think it was interesting that we burned them because it like signified that you're just letting go of your fear. But also when you're letting go of your ambition, like you're not necessarily letting go of your ambition. You're destroying the evidence that you ever wrote it down. Interesting. And I'm still stuck on every revelation is a risk. That is so opposed <laughs> to my field, like wellness <laughs> and, and coaching. <laughs> I'm envisioning a spinoff story now where Char has a therapist and he gets a new one every year <laughs> <laughs> because they die in a mysterious accident <laughs> every time he has a breakthrough. <laughs> but I do think it's interesting that Char actually disposed of the one person who had actually pledged their loyalty formally. One, one more comment. Just there, There's an interesting scene uh, between Garen and Degwin. Like Degwin does not want to go to war. And again, this comes from the manga, but he's so adamant about not starting a war and like saying that Daikun wouldn't have wanted a war that it led me to believe that maybe Degwin was not really behind Daikun's assassination. Like maybe Giran was the one but behind all that. Oh yeah. When I'm looking at this scene, I'm seeing Degwin submitting to Giran. Again, I'm seeing another parallel with like Japanese emperor and the Imperial army before World War II, like the emperor was just seen as, you know, he's above politics, like these squabbles about the Manchurian Peninsula. That's, that's below the concerns of the emperor. Like mm -hmm. the generals can handle all that stuff for whatever Degwin's wishes for Zeon. Ultimately, Giren's just going to do whatever he wants. Yes. He's just in his big chair and that's where he's going to stay. And Giren's going to do his thing. Yeah, so they stage this assault. Uh, they catch all of the Federation forces by surprise. Anyone who puts up a resistance is not organized. They're just like a lone fighter on the street as opposed to uh, the concentrated uh, frontline effort of the cadets. And this shows us again that the conflicts of the future will not be decided by tanks and huge mm. things. They will be decided by the smaller, more mobile forces, <laughs> right? The yeah. mobile suits, as it were. Oh, wow. And Lino agrees to a special assignment to mm. commandeer a tank that's firing on them. And Char gives him the order to switch his communications to a private channel, which should be a dead giveaway to someone who is a little suspicious. But Lino, who's all in for Kasval Daikun's return, he doesn't see it that way. And instead he sees it as like, okay, this is my chance to prove my loyalty so that I can be one of Char's like lieutenants, right? But that is not what Char wants out of this interaction. Charge orders these other troops to fire on the tank, ultimately killing uh, uh, Lino. Again, just going back to this Dom and Sub uh, motif that I was seeing, he kept screaming out, Casval, like, like that was going to be the safe word that saved him, but it was not. That was actually sealing his fate. Mm -hmm. So this is why it shouldn't 
um, depress you, Brian, is because Lino, okay. <laughs> Lino demonstrates the difference between knowledge and wisdom. The knowledge is, yes, yes I know that he's actually Casfall. Wisdom would be shutting the fuck up and not saying anything. <laughs> Oh, I was just saying he put himself yeah. into this situation by revealing that he knew who he was in the previous scenes. When you have knowledge like that, you should keep it to yourself until you know what that other person wants. Man, we are getting a lot of gems out of this episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, they successfully storm the military base. Uh, they hit it with mortar fire and char specifically like leads the assault even like single-handedly he gets into the command structure saying hey i know you think you're still in charge here but i need you to read this situation again and i thought it was really cool symbolism that uh he's wearing sunglasses through most of the episode but you can usually still see it's an artistic choice. You can still see one of the eyes behind the sunglasses, sometimes both eyes. But now with this helmet on, you can't see shit. Uh, making him an, a hyper-competent mobile suit pilot because you can't read your opponent the same way that people are used to reading their opponent because they're behind this screen. Oh my God, dude. Like the episodes leading up to this, there's so much focus on his eyes and his face. <sighs> And his reactions to different situations. Wow. Oh, and now it's gone. He's closed off to us. Yes. As the door opens on this uh, command room, the emergency lights are on. So it bathes him in this red as he opens up, right? <laughs> Foreshadowing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we get one last scene where Dozel finally makes it to the back lines, the artillery units in time to catch Garma as he uh, faints from exhaustion, right? Mm -hmm. So there is no sex in this episode, right? No explicit scenes of intercourse or anything like that. But we get two scene and then after scenes. When Char makes the little bivouac tent for Garma, there are these explicit shots, uh, sharpened sticks, penetrating the ground right yes and then the immediate next scene where they see him char is showering which is usually a post-copulation activity right mm. um and now again we have garma this combat is taking the place of sex right like in this yeah. hyper toxic masculine way garma getting through his first <sighs> night of combat is the same as him making love all night for the first time he is exhausted and he falls into the arms of his brother well dozel is a picture of an alpha male oh my gosh that's so much better than the angle i was going on yes exactly he falls into this role oh that's brilliant so this is called the dawn rebellion so like again like garma passes out after losing his virginity as one does <laughs> yeah and then uh but char is uh is hydrating the night is over and we're watching the sunrise. It's dawn and it's a red dawn. Mm -hmm. And what, what's that saying? Red dawn at morning, sailor take warning. What? Because there's a storm coming. Oh. Oh, you've never heard that? Yeah. Never heard that. And red often uh, transitional color, transformational, like the red moon signifies a, a time of uh, change and the, the veils between worlds being weaker. Yeah. So just like the other end of that saying, like red dawn at night, sailor's delight. It's just funny that Char's watching a red dawn and he's delighted. Everything's red. I think I rather like it. 
like the storm is his delight. Yeah. <sighs> this guy. And that's kind of it. We get, like you said, the way that both of them react to the finalization of this conflict, uh, exhaustion versus hydration, right? And showing that Garma does not get the same out of combat that Char gets. He finds it invigorating, whereas Garma finds it exhausting. Well, and Garma's playing a role too, right? Like he's not actually a leader and that's why it's exhausting. He's acting. <gasps> yes, that's it. Or that's how the one year war starts. Right. And another kind of muddy historical allegory is that it's a student rebellion. No more teachers. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you guys about that. I mean, I don't know specifically. There, there's, a, there's a historical precedent for that, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the French revolutions, uh, there's strong student backing of those forces. Uh, a lot of young, educated people dying. In the Russian revolution, it was, you know, the people that won the victory, but it was headed by a vanguard party. And, and we get kind of a not a synthesis, but like a, a halfway point because these are students, but they're military students, right? Right. I would also point out that all the founding fathers of the United States were basically kids when all of that went down too. Like Alexander Hamilton is like 19 when the revolution happened. Mm -hmm. You know, wow. Washington's this old man at 30. Oh. Yeah, you, maybe man. you need that youthful gusto to incite the rebellion. To, to think it's a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, to have that full foolhardy youthful hope yeah uh because degwin's never gonna pull the trigger right right oh my gosh you're so awesome thomas hey if you ever man. a bug to watch some more anime you let us know <laughs> well i'm always down for recommendations because i often just scroll okay. through and i'm never really sure what to pick i either have one episode left of cowboy bebop or i just finished it and then it's kind of like okay now what well i guess that leads us into our next section then if if one of if our viewers enjoyed Gundam the Origin, like what's something that you would recommend them to follow this up with? Okay, so well, one, I've never really been a huge fan of Mecha. Not I shouldn't say fan. I've never really exposed myself to all that much Mecha, generally speaking. So I don't know that I can necessarily answer that. I've stuck with mainstream stuff. Or do you think like the level of intrigue in this would lend itself to? You said that uh, you really loved um, Death Note. Yeah, I'm blanking all of a sudden on names. So if you bear with me just for one second, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll just say uh, there is a uh, a short after credit scene which I missed. What? What? Yeah, there's a short after credit scene that shows a very young Amuro Ray and his father arriving on side seven for the first time. It's kind of a throwaway. It's mostly a teaser. And I found uh -huh. out that this episode actually uh, had its big screen debut at, I think, the UK Comic-Con. Uh -huh. So it was a, a publicity thing to have this little teaser so that people would be ready for the next installment of the OVA. Holy crap. I'm watching it right now. Oh my God. I've never seen this. It's not traditional anime, but Love, Death and Robots on Netflix was awesome. It's a bunch of little short stories. Everyone's a little bit different and they have different art styles. So some are more classic anime art style. Some are very CGI. It's a compendium of a bunch of different tales. Um, highly recommend Love, Death, and Robots. They're, it's easy to watch. I think they're like 10-minute episodes or something like that. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's in the same vein as uh, old classics like Heavy Metal. Okay. Yeah, a bunch of scene work that are uh, connected not by a plot thread, but by themes instead. Yeah. And you said something, I just wanted to see, you said something about Psyche K. 
Oh yeah. Um, like the disastrous life of psyche K it's a comedy. That's one of my favorite ones. Uh, yeah. That's a long series, man. It's not too bad. It's, I mean, granted, I can only see what's on Netflix. So maybe there's more that I haven't okay. watched yet. It's um, a lot of cutting internal humor. You've got little character archetypes that play off each other. Mm-hmm. And nobody can take the hint that Psyche doesn't really want to deal with any of them. He's this guy mm-hmm. like in his own little <laughs> world. And he's, uh, um, he's, he's called Psyche because he's a psychic. Uh-huh. And he can do things with his mind and he's trying to control that and it takes a lot of effort to control that and he's got these like idiot friends who just keep on popping up and interrupting him and bad stuff happens i like it because uh one the art style is great but two the humor is just wonderful yeah there's like so many outrageous scenarios oh it's hilarious (laughs) and he loves um like coffee um jelly (laughs) coffee jelly yeah i do too it's a real thing (laughs) it's a japanese thing okay yeah he's all over it well, I, I meant to ask this at the beginning, uh, but like you've dropped a few like political mind bombs on me uh, during this recording. You, you've had a background in, as a labor lobbyist, correct? Yes, I was yeah. a labor lobbyist for um, the Mid-Atlantic uh, Division, I should say, of the Mid-Atlantic Laborers Union. I guess I was wondering specifically about being your, your time as a labor lobbyist, if that contributed to the formation of some of the, the views that you shared with us today. I would say that my decision to go apply and accept a position as a labor lobbyist was informed by getting into government, seeing what, in my opinion, what was wrong with the system that was established, growing a class consciousness because, you know, rich people never stopped fighting class war. They just gave us, Mm -hmm. you know, TV and things to pacify us, things like anime (laughs) to to pacify (laughs) us, you know, and not think about the fact that we're being subjected to a class war. I, I think my decision to go into labor union lobbying was more informed by my love and appreciation for Virginia history, realizing we're a slave state, realizing that we didn't willingly change over our economy after we lost the civil war we didn't get rid of slavery we like the 13th amendment just regulated it it's regulated it to people who are in prison so what did virginia Mm -hmm. do it tried to put as many black people in prison as it could yes and once you're in prison by the way you only work for two bucks an hour yeah hey just just a shout out on this Mm -hmm. transition virginia just did an episode about this a few weeks ago am i right oh yeah yeah uh some of the stuff was painful to hear do you remember the, the title of that episode? Uh, like th- this is just, this would be, be my personal recommendation for anyone interested in this. Material. Well, we cover this genre a lot. Let me go back into our episodes real quick. Like uh, John Henry. I, I didn't know John Henry was a real person. Oh yeah. And then ended up in prison as slave labor. Oh yeah. That fucked with my head, man. <laughs> the why are Virginia felons disenfranchised? Is that it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That was a good. Yeah. So felon disenfranchisement, trigger warning on some transition Virginia material. <laughs> yeah. Even with that trigger warning, I still endorse your show like wholeheartedly. There's there are things that people just need to know that just aren't common knowledge. Um, oh, thank you for that, Brian. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate what you're doing, man. And this has been great. Yeah, I feel like we could do another show right here. Um, <laughs> but uh, right, so we got to modify our sign off. Yeah. Um, so usually, uh, usually there's three hosts, right? And, and Ben is, uh, uh, sorry, he couldn't be here today. He had mitigating circumstances. This is the most geeky thing we do, but it's the cherry on top. All right. Are we ready? Yeah. Pen. Pen. Pals. Hello. Hello.
excellent.